0: Amen. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This letter, written by the Apostle Paul, is written to his son in the faith, his spiritual protege, Timothy, young Timothy. He's instructing Timothy to remain at Ephesus. Uh, that church had been planted many years prior, and then just a, a little bit before this, Paul had sent Timothy back there to Ephesus. To, to kind of stabilize the church. There was good ministry that was going on there, and in fact, um, the, the church at Ephesus had been able to plant churches in surrounding communities, and yet there was a need for that church to be built up. And so Paul, loving his son in the faith, Timothy, loving this church and this people, he sent Timothy there, and now he writes, and he says, Remain there and continue on in the work that God has begun in that place, particularly... Paul is instructing Timothy to lead the people toward soundness, both in doctrine and in life and ultimately in order. Much of this book is, is practical instruction about the, the church of the living God the people of God, the, as he says in chapter 3, the household of God, and how it is that the household of God should be ordered with its officers of elders and deacons, with, with church and community life, how you are to, to live with one another. And then ultimately, he speaks about Christian endurance. But all of these practical instructions are downstream of the gospel. All of the the instructions about how to live, how to interact, how to order the household of God, they're all grounded in the, the root system of the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, who the church is and what the church does is downstream and flows out of the saving work of Jesus and of His person who He makes us to be. Our text this morning is chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. This is where we find uh, what is in fact upstream of all of those practical instructions. So, verse 12, 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We tend to give half-hearted endorsements. Do we not? Someone asked us, hey, did, did you see that movie? Hey, have you, have you read this book? And what do we say? Yes, I, I did. I, I saw that movie. I read that book. And I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was good. But, but there was this one part that I really didn't care for. There was this, there was this one character that didn't make sense. There was, there was this one scene that, that I didn't like. Uh, we have people ask us about restaurants we've eaten at, electricians we've used. Uh, schools we've attended, and so often, what do we do? We say, "Yes, but and why do we do that? What why do we do that? was well, a very simple explanation. We don't want to overpromise something to someone who values our opinion. We don't want to overpromise and for them to be let down. We don't want to overpromise, and then the thing we've endorsed underdeliver on that promise. Well, guess what? Paul, here in 1 Timothy 1, he does not share that concern. He gives no half-hearted endorsement of the gospel. Here in verse 15, that's the, the bullseye of our passage. What does he do? What does he do? He doubles down on the good news of Jesus. He goes all in. He puts his chips into the middle of the table, and he tells his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, to do the same. And through this writing, the, the Holy Spirit of God instructs us also, double down here. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that there is something in life that is this dependable when it feels like in so many ways there's nothing firm to stand on, no solid ground, nothing to, to build my life upon, nothing to, to plant a, a church upon, nothing to, to stake my soul upon. Paul here says, God here says to us, oh, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Churches and ministries and lives should be built upon this truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's His mission. That's His mission. He came with a purpose. He became man for a reason. And that reason, His mission, was the salvation Sinners. We see this played out in our paragraph with two interconnected points. Two interconnected points concerning this mission of Christ. And both of these strands are kind of wrapped around and, and unfolded in the example of Paul. Uh, Paul, as it was, uses his own life and ministry as the case study. And he says, okay, I'm, I'm writing to Timothy, and there are some things that are, that are going on there, particularly false doctrine in and among the church, uh, but other things that need to come into order. And as I'm considering these things, Paul looks at his own life, and he looks at Christ, and he says, okay, here's what we need to build upon this mission of Christ, and particularly two points, two strands that cannot be untied from one another. The first is this. Christ's saving mission is entirely of God's free mercy. Christ's saving mission is entirely of God's free mercy. Now, this isn't the only place we find this in the New Testament, is it? Over and over again in the Gospels, what do we read? Jesus Christ has come into the world with a reason. With a reason. He has come into the world with a reason. Two examples Matthew 1, verse 21, she shall bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Christ says of himself in Luke 5, 31 and 32, and Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come, I'm, I'm sorry, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When you think of a, a rescue mission, your first thought might be of a of a military operation, and maybe you think of a of a fighter pilot who's been shot down behind enemy lines. Maybe you think about soldiers who have been stranded, and there they are in a very dangerous, precarious position. They're hiding, they're hoping that before the enemy finds them, that that a special ops unit comes in to rescue them. Maybe that's the the kind of mission, kind of rescue effort you have in mind. And, And to be clear, there are some similarities between that sort of rescue mission and the mission of Christ, namely... Both are matters of life and death. But, there's one massive difference. Christ came to rescue those who had not earned their rescue. Those soldiers, those marines, they had given their lives up, sacrificed their own well-being for the good of their nation, for the soldiers around them. They were worthy of a special ops unit going in after. What about us? What about the people that, that Jesus came for? Not so much. He didn't come for the, for the well, but for the sick. He didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinners. Because we, standing in need of rescue, very much in need of rescue, we weren't innocent of the situation that we found ourselves in. No, by our own sin, we had placed ourselves there as enemies of God. Now, how do we know this? Why can, why can we say this? Well, Paul tells us in the three verses Prior the four verses prior to our passage, I won't read it, but I draw your attention to verses eight to eleven. There, Paul points out one of the lawful uses of the law. So, the law of God is it is it good? Is it is it bad? Well, what do we do with it? Well, Paul says one of the the good purposes of the law is to demonstrate our sinfulness. Is that not what the law of God does? Whenever we consider ourselves and we and we look at God's word and we consider. God's holiness. We, we've sung a, a lot this morning about God's holiness. About God's goodness. When we think about God, the, the holy God. When we read His law, what do we find? We find that we are not holy. We are not righteous. Righteous. If there is this bar, if there is this standard, if there is this line, we don't meet it. So that if Christ has come to rescue us, it's not because we earned it. It's of God's free mercy. But we see that also in the first three verses of our passage. Pick up again verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. But we don't stop there. Though, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul says of himself that His apostleship, His his place as, as a, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it absolutely amazed him. I mean, why, why wouldn't it? Who was this guy? Who was this guy? He, he says it of himself. Violent toward the people of God. A persecutor of the people of God. A, a blasphemer of God. Why was it that Paul was in this position of, of authority and apostleship? Was it because of who he was? No, it was not. It was of God's grace alone. Uh, Just like it was of God's grace alone that Paul had been rescued from sin and saved. He had been converted and brought to Christ. See, what, what, what do we find except that every single aspect of Paul's life and ministry was of God's mercy from beginning to end. No part of it was his own doing, his own merit. That's why Paul adds a personal note That trustworthy saying of the gospel in verse 15. That trustworthy saying, he says, this must be accepted, build your life upon this. He adds a personal note to it. Of these sinners, he says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, I am the foremost. The famous language of the King James, chief sinners. Chief. Sinners. Literally, Paul is describing himself as the proto sinner, the one who is at the front of the line. Now, Paul is not only acknowledging that he is still a sinner in need of God's grace, he's acknowledging particularly his pre conversion rebellious unbelief. Um, Specifically, he is recalling his blasphemy. He is recalling his persecution of the church, his violent aggression toward Christ. And whenever he thinks about that, he says of himself that he is the prototype sinner. But we too must recognize our own sinfulness. In some sense... Could we not all describe ourselves as the chief of sinners? Because I know sins in my own life that that you don't know of me. And the other way around is true also. Could each of us not rightly examine our own heart with if there's clarity, if there's honesty, and say, Man, I, I'm I'm the proto sinner. I'm I'm the one at the front of the line. I am the chief of sinners. But Paul's point here is not literally to rank sinners in vileness or to, to rank unbelievers in the damage that they've caused. Like, you know, Paul was, was damaging to the church in this way, but don't you remember Peter? Peter was brash. Peter was... Uh, he, he was he was quick tempered he was prideful and then there was thomas thomas doubted right so let's get out the the legal pad and let's start ranking sinners no that's not what paul is saying what is he saying he's saying jesus saves sinners even the worst of them even sinners like me even sinners like peter even sinners like us today you and me christ came not for the well but for the sick. He came to save blasphemers and liars. He came to save the worst of the rebels, the worst of His enemies. But not only that, not only that, He has now included us in His mission. I mean, you want to talk about mercy, even if it just stopped right there. Even if it stopped right there, that would be entirely of, of mercy. But you want to talk about mercy? Now, God has brought us into His work in Christ. There's a, there's a, a rescue effort ongoing, and Jesus says, you know what, not only am I going to save that one, I'm going to, to bring him on to the unit. He's now going to be a part of the team. He's now involved in the mission. I mean, how crazy is that? How crazy? Merciful is Thou that we, like Paul says of himself in verse 12, we are now in God's service. By appointing His disciples as disciple-makers in the Great Commission, He's made us co-laborers with Him. So that now His mission is our mission. How how radical. And that's true of every genuine Christian. And it's true of every Christian church. For Covenant Baptist Mission, gathering today in Jones County, Mississippi, it is true of that church, those believers there, that mission work there, that, that our efforts, our endeavors, our mission, it's the same as Christ's. That's true of Caledonia Baptist Church here today. As you were gathered and as you'll be scattered later at the end of our service, as you go throughout your lives the rest of the week, as you gather again the Lord's Day next week, you as the people of God, you have the same mission as Christ. You have been brought in. That's why I'm able to to step into this place today. Have Have you thought about that? Maybe... Maybe you've found it weird, me being here. I've not found it weird, me being here. I just I just haven't. Because we serve the same God. Y'all, we we serve the same risen Christ. We have the same mission. We have the same goals. And so I'm able to come into here, into this place today, to step up to this pulpit and to share with you good news. The good news of Jesus. Pastor Mark Dever once wrote. The most important things about our church have to be the things that we have in common with every other Christian church, not the things that are unique about it. I wonder if you've ever thought about it like that before. I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that we don't belong to ourselves, we've been bought with a price. I wonder if you've ever considered it this way we serve not ourselves. Not our agendas, not our preferences, no. We've been given eternally weighty work to do. So that we don't have the liberty to say what our mission is and isn't. That's not up to us. It's not up to us. Through Christ Jesus, we who were once enemies of God are now a part of the search and rescue team. Our mission is what? To tell others of the One who came to save their souls. Christ alone. That means practically. That means that we don't shy away from difficult gospel situations. Because the work of the church is the work of Christ and it's all of God's free mercy. No matter how unlikely... An evangelistic opportunity seems to us, no matter how hard a place seems to reach, guess what? If it's all of God's mercy, then He's called us to go into places like that and to share the gospel with the person that's heard it a hundred times already, the person who seems to be so hardened in sin that it, it feels like there's no hope. Because guess what? There's always hope. Christ Jesus rose from the dead. He can raise someone back to life spiritually as well. And so if you know a coworker or a friend, or maybe it's a family member, maybe maybe it's a a close loved one. And you feel like whatever you do, however you pray, whatever you say, whatever circumstances may surround them, however many times they've heard the good news of of Jesus that they are out of God's reach, I'm here to tell you today that is simply not true. Church, there is no soul too far gone for God because Christ came to save sinners. So press on, press on in faithful gospel missions and evangelism. God alone, by divine power and sovereign grace, saves even the foremost of sinners. Therefore, He gets the glory. That's our our second Point or a second strand that we see wrapped around the, the person of Paul and his example. The second strand is this. Christ's saving mission magnifies Christ alone. Look back to your text beginning in verse 15 this time. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Consider, brother, sister, consider God's perfect patience in your life. I could tell you about it in mine. I could tell you about how, despite my parents' Diligence, despite my church's faithfulness, despite the fact that I had heard the gospel countless times and had even been convicted of my sin countless times, had been pricked by the Holy Spirit countless times. No matter that, I refused to bow the knee to Christ. Years went by. Empty moralism. Fake pretense, and hypocrisy. And yet, God finally knocked me off of my feet. After years, God was merciful toward me. God demonstrated His perfect patience toward me, and He made me His own despite my faithfulness? No, despite my rebellious sin against Him. And every Christian has a similar story. Every Christian, even the ones who hear the gospel for only one time and, and repent and believe, though those instances we know are few and far between, even in those, the main plot line is the same. What is it? Well, we brought to the table one thing, sin and our need to be saved. And God, in His mercy, saved us from ourselves and from our sin and from judgment against that sin. So your conversion, does it make much of you? No, (laughs) your conversion makes much of Christ. It makes much of Christ. It magnifies Christ. So Paul writes, I received mercy that Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And in the example of Paul, this is tremendously true. I mean, how many people, how many people do you think heard the story about the lead Christian persecutor becoming the lead Christian preacher and missionary? How many people do you think heard that story? How many of those people, God used that story to soften their hearts to the gospel so that they were saved in part as a result of hearing that? Paul is this tremendous example. We might say that Apart from the resurrection of Jesus from death to life, Paul is the the greatest turnaround in the New Testament. Apart from that one. Yet, it's the same grace and power of God that was needed to save Paul, that is needed to save the kindest, best-mannered child or grandchild that you know. I'm talking about the, the best one. The best one you know. You know what that one needs in order to be saved? The same power that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. The same grace of God in Christ. The same Word of God spoken and shared with them. It is all of the grace of God. And not only that, we are still in need of His Mercy. One author says we're not grace graduates, and I love the way he says that. We're not grace graduates, as if as if we have gotten the degree, we've gotten the diploma, and now we can move on to something else. Okay, we got that down. We've we've heard the good news. We believed in Christ. We've received grace in Christ, and now let's move on to, to bigger and better things. No, nope, we never move on past this. We never move on past the gospel. We never move on past God's grace. It's His grace that's going to carry us all the way from this life into heaven where we will gather around the throne and magnify not one another, but God alone, Christ alone. And ultimately, it's this making much of Christ that is the reason He came. Now, I want to be clear. I want to be clear. In one sense, He came because we were sinners and we needed to be saved. In one sense, He came because He loved us. He came because the Father loved us. But underneath it all, He came so that His name would be known and magnified above all other names in all the earth. That's why He came. So that the end of sinners coming to Christ would be the glorification of God in salvation. The very reason we were created, the very reason we exist is to glorify God. And that happens in our lives chiefly whenever we worship Him as those saved by Him. And so if you notice, if you're looking there at the text, our passage begins with thanksgiving. God, thank You for what You have done. But how does it end? It ends not with thanksgiving, but with doxology. It ends with praise and celebration and rejoicing and and worship of God. That that kind of worship for the people of God, it just spills out of us. Does it not? Throughout our weeks, we we praise Him whenever we pray to Him. We praise Him whenever we testify of His goodness to to people around us, to those in our lives. We, We even live our whole lives for His sake. And then especially whenever we gather here in the house of God on on Sunday, the the regular corporate gathering of the body of Christ, what happens? Worship just spills out of our lips and our hearts as we gather with the fellow saints. Remember, this is a, a church manual of sorts for young Timothy. And, and Paul is saying, hey, all of these things that have to be ordered, all of these things that have to be put into place, all of those things, they are going to come out of a, a life and a heart of worship to God, of praise to God. And so we agree with Paul. Verse 17, "...to the king of the ages..." immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. For those who are here today who have not bowed to Christ in saving faith, this is the one you are rejecting. For those here today who are serving Christ, who have turned from self-worship to the worship of God. This is the one that you are serving and praising. This God, this Christ, this King, not of the hour, not of this particular place, but this King of the ages. Immortal God, invisible God. God only wise. So that we will forever sing honor and glory forever and ever to Him. There's no greater news than this. That the Son of God became man with the purpose of saving sinners by His own life and His own death and His own resurrection from the grave. Christ be magnified. Christ be magnified because of His saving mission to rescue sinners like me. Let's pray. Father, what glorious good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What wonderful news that we, whenever we stood in need of salvation, offering only sin, only unrighteousness, only The need for salvation. It was in that moment that Christ came for us. What what beauty and what glory in the gospel. And that we know God is because it's, it's your gospel. It's your good news. And so we magnify you and we praise Christ our King. In whose name we pray. Amen.